podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, and we're back with Jason Zook. Uh, we were just uh, during the break. We we were talking about Andrew Schultz, and we're we're gonna get to uh, own your weird. We're gonna talk a lot about Jason here, but we were since we're talking about bucking the status quo. Uh, Andrew Schultz has been on the podcast before. He's a comedian who, um, <clears throat> he just dropped a new special, and it is it's hilarious. It's just called the Crowdwork Special. I can't wait literally, to check it out. I mean, yeah, co- comics spend two years creating the the the, the material for a special. And they, they craft it, craft it. He went out on stage in Washington, D.C. for 40 minutes and just did. Now, Ryan and I typically hate crowd work because Dude, it's like. It's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 Well, because it's making fun of yeah. the person. Like, it, you're not laughing with the person. It's like. It almost I'm gonna, doesn't take a lot of effort. Yeah. Like, it's easy. It's lowbrow. It is yeah. lowbrow. Yeah. It yeah. is. Yeah. Crowd work, like, it, for all intents and purposes, I look at it like it's lowbrow. I'd never enjoy it except for when Andrew Schultz does it. I totally agree. And and uh, there's this part in, in the new special. It's just called the crowd work special. We'll put a link to it. Uh, it's out on YouTube right now. And uh, if you're easily offended, well, then I don't know why you're listening to this, but you're especially <laughs> you're especially going to be offended by by his special because he that's the thing he he dissects everything from race to politics to culture, and he does so extemporaneously. I mean, he's freestyling jokes on stage uh, with the interaction of a crowd, and, and he basically said, you know, uh, when every he said my job. At, as as Andrew Schultz is when everyone in society is saying, well, things are this way, my job is to say, well, when you think about it and like just go into it every time and he absolutely does it and it is, I mean, it it's one of the best specials I've seen in a long time and the fact that it's done off the top of the head, um, you, you see these other comedians who release specials that aren't half as good as this mm-hmm. and he is sort of the comedian of the moment. We're in a moment where we've become overly uh, sensitized in a way, right? And that's why I, I can say thank you to the Patreon supporters who let us like do things that are a lot more. Um, uh, they allow us to fail in public in a way that we, yeah. we 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 may not be able to otherwise. They allow us to question things and 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 think out loud, sort of how a stand-up comedian would get on stage and and talk about stuff that we wouldn't talk about in in I public. Love, I love what you talked about when I was like, "Oh, is it on Netflix?" You're like, "No, he released it on on YouTube." And I just think that's such a powerful example of you don't need the permission of all the gatekeepers anymore. I haven't needed it with any of my crazy ideas. I've definitely thought I might have needed it, but it's proven that I haven't. And I think that that just goes to show that anyone can do anything. It's just a matter of believing in yourself or if you don't believe in yourself, having the courage to go, I want the goal more than I fear the reality it takes to get there. Mm. And I steal that from my wife who said that and I've stolen it now and said it and put it in my book and she still gets credit (laughs) for it. But it is so true. When you really want that thing, you'll do whatever it takes. But when you find that people don't actually want the thing, they just want the potential of success or the right. notoriety, it doesn't happen. And so this is, I just love that example because Netflix tells him no, Hulu tells him, you know, all these people tell him no and he goes, mm-hmm. all right, I'll put it on YouTube. I still want to do it. And then the ripple effect of that is also kind of the planting of the seed of this will lead to other things. Even if this doesn't become super successful, someone will see this and maybe that will open the door to something else. If you want that, you may not even want that. Well, yeah. he also he also realized in a way that he was um, he was doing something different because his last special when we had him on the podcast he released it instead of having an hour long special he released it in five ten minute chunks mm. because that's how things get shared they're they're more bite sized and then he also 
he doesn't treat anything as, as precious. He puts new jokes, on, like stand-up jokes, on his Instagram every week. So you have a one or two minute joke that's out there, uh, as opposed to like, well, I'm going to treat this as, as something that's so precious and no one else can see it. He's willing to throw it away and start from scratch essentially every week. Now that takes a particular kind of courage as well. We really? we often hold on to to this idea. Well, it's like, well, I, I can't share this yet. It's not fully big. It's not perfect. Mm. Um, well, no, it, it, he's putting his best foot forward, and, and that actually requires some some failure along the way as well. But as he has failed, he has failed his way to success because he's sharing things that all of a sudden go go viral because other people are like yeah i identify with that and now i'm going to share it in a way that you can't share you know the new uh, whatever uh, uh dave Chappelle special you, there are no you can't pull out, it's actually illegal for you to take a bit from that and share it on twitter or whatever right mm-hmm. whereas andrew's like no here it is share it if you if you if you want if you find value in it and it creates this new paradigm that I, we we've never had before and um, i think it takes a certain amount of bravery because now he is facing choices where it's like now they're coming to him because everything he puts out there gets multi-million views and it's like okay now we now we see the the value in this and yeah. we we want to latch ourselves onto it even though we used to say no to it i'll tell you what though like that's a much better position to be in because if let's say he went to Netflix with his first special and they were like, yes, we want like there would be so much pressure for this for it to be this great thing. Netflix is going to have more control over it where now he kind of gets to do it the way he wants to do it. And, you know, if Netflix says we want to we want to have you on uh, this special on Netflix and they want to do it a certain way, he can be like, you know what? This just isn't a good match. I'm going to just go ahead and keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And yeah. I think you afford the ability to take control of your art and your work when you've done it the hard way. Yeah. When you do it the way that someone else gives you the platform, you kind of lose control. You lose the flexibility because then they go, well, hey, we're the ones who did this for you. And they kind of are. They kind of, yeah. and, and that's why I think for you guys, like I've been super close to your story and your journey. And I just love the fact that like, like Netflix didn't put you on the map. You had already no. done that for so many years beforehand. But so many people think, oh, wow, it's so cool you guys got your start on Netflix. Yeah, and it's it's and it's the same for me. Like yeah. people see the work that I'm like, oh, it's you did this. And it's like, yeah, but it's just like 12 years of also doing other things. <laughs> and, and I think one of the things I wanted to bring up just because I love this example, when I was through the editing phase of this book, Neil Brennan's stand-up came out on Netflix. Yeah, and it's the, the three, three mics. mics. Yeah, It blew my mind. Right. I've never seen anything like it. And that to me... I just kind of had gotten bored of stand-up for a while because it's like the same thing. It's like guy goes on stage, woman goes out on stage to tell jokes to do whatever, and some are better than others. But this is like a whole different concept. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just thought, like, I'm like, if I was writing a book that shared other people's weird stories, uh, this would be one of the first because I just loved it and I watched it and it completely changed the way I felt about stand-up again and like got me excited about it. Yeah, yeah, you know, going out and being weird, like some, you know, it's it's a it could be a very good thing. I, I think what we were talking about earlier about being authentic, about being consistent, about putting your best foot forward. Like if you're weird, but you're being authentic, you are putting your best foot forward. Like you are going to have a level of success. Are you going to be Neil Brennan, multimillionaire? Yeah. You know, no one can guarantee that, but you absolutely will, will have some level of success. Yeah. I'm thinking of weird now. We're talking, since we're talking about stand up comics, one of my favorite comics, I've only seen him live once. Uh, Rick Glassman, <laughs> he is, I, I never even heard of him before. He's been on a bunch of TV shows and stuff, but I saw him come up at, uh, I think it was the belly room over at, uh, the comedy store and he was so weird, it, but in all the best ways. I mean, it, and 
there's this a particular kind of humor that wouldn't exist. I mean, he he was almost. Um, I don't even know how to explain. It. Like that, that's the, like there's not language to describe yep. what he's doing. Yep. It, the same thing like with the, the Neil Brennan thing. You can we could say you know three mics or, or whatever. In fact, there was something about reinventing the wheel. Uh, oh yeah, so Easy Greek had a question. We'll, we'll skip ahead real quick. Easy Greek said, "Is bucking the status quo always the preferable way forward?" Are we sometimes too keen on reinventing the wheel or trying to fix something when it's not broken just as an attempt to make our mark on the world? What's the value in being found in staying within the status quo, if any? Now, uh, here's what I would say. Uh, first off, there, there's nothing... You know, we often use this term reinventing the wheel as a pejorative. Like why, But actually, that's kind of what you want to do most of the time. It's great that we've reinvented the wheel because we started out with like the cartwheel for a, a, a horse and buggy. And if you try to put that on your Toyota Corolla, <laughs> it, you're going to fail. So like mm. we've reinvented the wheel several times and it's been to our benefit. Uh, and we have to reinvent the wheel when we're actually trying to make better wheels. And in many ways, that's sort of what Neil did with three mics is it wasn't completely revolutionary. It was it was reinventing the wheels, creating a better wheel for him, for the vehicle he was trying to deliver. Yeah, and I think so much of like what you were just saying about success is, is similar to this where it becomes the internal motivator. So success is obviously super subjective, right? It means a different right. thing to other people. But for me, I know with all of my weird ideas, if they're not weird because I've experienced it, I don't feel good about them. Mm. I don't feel like they're good things. Even if they've been successful financially, I don't get an internal validation from it. And money is great. You got to pay the bills. You have to figure that out. And it goes back to Jessica earlier with the woodworking, right? Like, mm -hmm. sure, it may not be the ultimate woodworking stuff that you want to do now, but maybe you have to do that to bridge the gap to figure out what it is that you're doing. And now I know for me, I have bridged that gap. So now every project that I do, I feel like I do need to reinvent the wheel a little bit. Otherwise, I don't enjoy the work. And so you have to figure that out for yourself. So if you're not at that place where you have to do something differently, then by all means, do it the same way because competition just means people are willing to pay for it in business. Yeah. That's all it is. That's yeah. the truth. When you see all these different things, it means that people are paying for it. So that's a good thing to buy into that. But then if you really don't feel like you're getting value out of it, you have to find your own internal metric to say, I need to do it this way. Otherwise, I'm not going to feel good about it. Yeah. I mean, when I think about the minimalists, I mean, dude, this is not a new idea. And when we started talking about minimalism, it certainly wasn't a new idea. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it dates back to the Stoics or Jesus or Buddha or whoever you want to bring in there. But what we did is we had our unique perspective. We had uh, certain ideas, certain revelations, certain experiments that we didn't see be, uh, get you know, put out there. And we were like, hey, let's put this stuff out there because, yeah, this is uh, uh, inventing the wheel in a new way, I guess. I mean, kind of what you were talking about earlier. It's yeah, it's, like, it's just create a different wheel. So, and, and here's the thing. People find find value in... Some people will find value in what you're doing. The competition thing you, you talked about, uh, Seth Godin wrote about this not that long ago where he was talking about you know, the best place to sell a book is in a bookstore, right? Be, be, which is actually the highest competitive place so mm. you if i were to put this at the local chevron on the corner near my house like you wouldn't have any competition right but you're probably going to sell fewer copies than you would at a barnes and noble or on amazon or, or whatever because people go to the bookstore to buy books they don't go to chevron to buy books and so 
Uh, I mean, there's obviously other dynamics that are involved as well. I mean, with with the internet, people hear about it on something like this, and they'll go straight to, to Amazon <clears throat> and hopefully buy buy the book. Um, and, but but ultimately, you're you're much better off amongst the the competition. It doesn't mean you're going to sell to every person that comes in the door. But they're no longer asking questions. Should I should I buy a book? They're asking the question, which book do I want to buy? I feel like. Jason, he's challenging you to get all your books in Chevron. Chevron, <laughs> Chevron if you're listening, uh, I'm not interested because I drive a Tesla, so that's fine. <laughs> now, Jason, um, I wanted to read something. We do this segment called More About Less where we, we try to read something um, that is in line with uh, the topic or our values. And uh, you have on your website uh, your core values. Now, this is for you and your wife, I'm assuming, since it's on your About page and the two of you are together. It's true. Um, and so you have some core values here and Ryan and I are often talking about values and, and we, we make distinctions between foundational values, core values, uh, minor values and, and something else called imaginary values. So, uh, these are the sort of four types of values and it, it might sound like semantics, but, um, for me, like core values are sort of one step above the, the foundational values. I think all of us have similar foundational values, health, relationships, creativity, uh, personal growth or, or improvement, you could call it, and, and service or, or contribution. Um, and, and so that's sort of the foundation of the house. And then the, the, the sort of studs of the house is built on would be your, your core values. And so you have a few things here like transparency, authenticity, humor, Positivity, originality, invent, or intention, curiosity, and action, and you also have uh, sparkling water and donuts. Which <laughs> you gotta have the imaginary values too, you know. <laughs> the ephemeral values. Actually, I would I would call these I would call these minor value yeah. Uh, yeah. minor values, and and I think quite often where we get into trouble is we treat our minor values or our imaginary values, things we pretend are valuable that aren't. We treat them as though they are the most important things in our life. Mm. And, and and our value system gets flipped upside down. We begin to forsake the relationships in our lives, the, the foundational values, because we want more donuts or, or sparkling water or whatever. Yeah. I don't He's, think Jason would ever forsake his creativity for a donut. Ooh, what kind of donut? <laughs> <laughs> Did that fit in I humor? I stand corrected. I think it fit in humor. Okay, yeah. good. I'm working the system. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about, about your values. How did you How did you come to these? I came to these uh, from Caroline, my wife. So I, like probably many men, don't think a lot about my core values and never did. And it wasn't until we started working together, living together, where she started just kind of questioning some of the things that I was doing and going, well, why are you doing that? Or why do you resist so hard against certain things? Mm. And I was like, I don't know. You know, like I've never really thought about defining those things. And I've never done therapy. So maybe if you do therapy, you'll run up against this stuff as well. And so really Caroline has become my therapist, which may be dangerous for a relationship, but it works out okay for us. But she actually got me to actually write these things down and to start thinking about them. And it was so helpful because even if you just say, I have four buckets to put values in, mm -hmm. it gives you a container to then think about and talk about them, as opposed to this just open world of, well, I think this is what I like and I think this is what matters to me. It's like, no, you put them in these, these different things. So these values have become so important to us because then they become filters. So every decision you make then goes through those filters. So we all have different filters, we all have different values. So as we're gonna get to, I'm sure with my book that had all the sponsors in it, for you, you probably have some value that goes, sponsors in a book, like 
bounces off of it and like ricochets somewhere far away because you would yeah, never I mean, do it. In fact, it's it's so far away from that. Like I, I, I'm beginning to consider whether or not I'll ever appear on media that has advertisements. Right. Um, and, and I'm not there yet because like we'll do the Today Show or whatever, and they they that they make their income from advertisements, or we'll uh, like on our YouTube channel. We don't monetize it, even though we would make a lot of money doing that. It just doesn't align with with my personal values. Yeah. And, and so. Um, but that's a that's a, a core value. It is different from the foundational value. And I think the core values, they're different for each of us. That's how all of our houses, to continue that metaphor, look different. It's not a cookie cutter life. It's okay that even my wife and, and my values are different from from each other. Even our core values are appreciably different in a lot of cases. There's a considerable amount of overlap, yeah. but there there are things that we value more or less than each other, and that's okay. I think quite often that's what makes our relationship interesting. Yeah, and so I think the the railing against advertising and sponsorship and, and just in general media is, I totally align with you in a lot of that. And it's interesting for me to say that as someone who sold myself to 16, 1,600 companies for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But here's the difference for me in the way that I've reframed because I've actually thought about this and we haven't talked about it, but I've thought this conversation in my head with you amongst other conversations we've had imaginarily, <laughs> uh, which is, we're all advertising something. Mm. Yeah, so, I, I don't agree with that. I, 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 but, but you are, if you think about it. You're advertising your Patreon, which you make money from. No, but that's a promotion. It's different from an advertisement. But, uh, but it's, it's apples and oranges. No, it, it, right. And, and they both taste different. And some people have allergies to one. Sure. Um, and, and, and I think I think where what's different for me is I'm I'm totally fine with with promoting something that I believe in. An advertisement is different because you're being paid by an outside entity totally. to so support their their product or service. And not to cut you off, but just I've never taken a sponsor. Well, I can't say that because early on I didn't have values, so I didn't I had them, but I didn't know what they were. Mm -hmm. But very quickly, especially into my I wear your shirt project, I discovered, oh, I don't want to talk about political Com like companies that have a political angle. I don't want to talk about companies that don't treat animals fairly or whatever. Like if there's something like I figured that out through stumbling through it and going, oh, hold on, this feels terrible. Um, and I kind of liken this to like the hot stove moment in all aspects of life. If you almost have to go to the place of like touching the hot stove. So like I had to take on sponsors that didn't quite align with me to mm -hmm. understand oh shit, these don't align with me. Totally. Like I had to feel that to go, this is not good. Like this is not why I started this company. It's not why I started this idea. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So IWearYourShirt.com was the initial idea or the impetus of, of this. And and you basically wore a different shirt every day with someone's company uh, logo or yep. name on it, website, whatever. Um, you were, I assume you got this idea from NASCAR. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually it stems back to, I was a designer and we had clients. And so they would call us, this is 2006, 2007. And we would have these client calls. We would talk about design and then we'd just kind of like, you know, BS at the end of them. And they're like, hey, Jason, like you seem like a forward thinking guy. Like what's Facebook? What's Twitter? Should we be on these things? <laughs> and I, I didn't know what they were. And these were, this is 2006, 2007. No one really did. Yeah. And I started looking. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. There's a lot of people sitting on these platforms. And then you have these businesses who I actually did like and appreciate that there's there's not really an in-between of them. But you see it everywhere else. You see it on radio, TV, billboards, like all this other stuff. And so I just saw this opportunity of kind of combining these two or, or meeting these two in between. And the t-shirt thing just happened from going into my closet one day. And just like you said earlier in this was, 
we all wear t-shirts. We're all promoting some brand without even knowing it, whether it has a logo or not, like you bought it and you're wearing it. And if mm-hmm. someone asked you, you'd say, like, oh, this is this company. Right. Or if you make it yourself, you'd say it's my company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just thought, oh, this could be a really interesting way to do this and to wear a shirt every day with a brand on it. And the whole idea for me was, I just wanted to be a storyteller in between the brand and the people who were on social media. Why I thought I should do this, I had no idea. It was just, I think, being super naive when I was 25 or whatever, Mm -hmm. and just decided to try it and do it. And it was a miserable failure in the beginning because no one cared, why would anyone care? But then it started to pick up a little bit of traction. And I had this pricing structure that was super unique. So it was a dollar on the first day, $2 on the second day, $3 on the third day. January 1st, 2nd, et cetera. So that kind of bump sale pricing, as I call it now, that really got people to go, oh, sure, I'll spend $13 for you to wear my shirt. Like, go be an idiot on the internet. Like, let's see what happens. But it spiraled and it started to pick up traction and people started talking about it. And and I really did run into quickly a, a couple different things. But the main one was, oh, crap, I don't want to wear shirts for companies I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also wore shirts for Shopify before Shopify was what we know it was now. This is 2009. Mm-hmm. So I love that I got to promote those types of companies. I helped Nissan launch a car via a shirt. So like those are the stories that for me are just so fun. Now, am I upset that I wore some crappier ones? Yeah, sure. But I also well, t- had a lot of good Tell me about stuff. some of those. Like, were, were lessons you learned from ones that were crappier, as you call yeah, it. Yeah, it's actually more like a, like one that comes to mind. There was a beef jerky company, which is no longer a business, surprisingly. But the owner was just a jerk. Uh, and mm-hmm. so like I had a live show that I did every single day for an hour. And they came in and like they sent me like 10 pounds of beef jerky. And at the time, <laughs> I ate meat quite a bit. So I was fine with it. I was super excited. And they were just like, you're not eating the jerky. You're not talking about how great it is. And I'm like, listen who can eat 10 pounds of jerky at one time? Like, (laughs) this is not healthy. Why are you trying to get me to do this? But then they just were also, they expected everything for the like $50 that they paid or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I started to realize I had to put some systems in place that got people to understand you're paying X to get these deliverables. Mm -hmm. Everything else on top of that is just kind of gravy. Now, the funny part is, is that like 20 people bought the beef jerky like on the live show. So they made more than their money back, but they were just a really bad client. So I just learned lessons about how to mitigate those ahead of time and then just realizing like eh, I probably don't want to talk about like a food company and then have to feel like I have to eat 10 pounds of something on a live show I won't last <laughs> you still this. have like three pounds of beef jerky left over uh, I donated it all <laughs> to the garbage can because the person was a jerk the, the uh, you're reminding me of one of my favorite podcasts there's this this sort of dissidence that we were talking about earlier uh, is called the culture gab fest and uh, I often hear them railing against corporations mm. Which Ryan and I, we're often mistaken. Like people think that we rail against corporations, or we think that they're evil. I don't think they're, I don't think they're evil. I think they're inherently. I think corporations are inherently problematic, and I hate that word. But that uh, I think that we we that there there's a problem because by definition, a corporation we we actually missed the the beginning. The uh, part there, it's a for-profit corporation. There are two types of corporations: it's for-profit and non-profit, right? Um, and then there are sub subsets beyond that. But for-profit for-profit corporations have to, with the exception of B corps, they have to put their their profits first. In fact, they have a fiduciary responsibility to do that and that when it is your primary responsibility the reason you exist is not to add value to contribute to be a part of service it is just to make money then you often end up sacrificing your values and and that is a problem so when i hear the culture gab fest i hear them railing against a corporation and then all of a sudden i shit you not it's like this uh, this episode is brought to you by Exxon. Yeah, or Goldman Sachs is the new one for me. Every oh, podcast I hear wow. that's brought to you by Goldman Sachs, like, 
Wow. It just, it stuns me. And it's even people that like, and I'll I'll just say it, how I built this. Like that whole podcast is about like small, like almost nothing businesses growing into big things. Mm. And I'm like, you're talking about a company that led, that was a big part of the economic meltdown in 2008. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your show is about the economic buildup of companies and businesses and the the alignment of that or the incongruency of that, man, that hurts. And and I think as consumers, that is where I do side with you a lot on making the decision to go, well, I'm opting out of that. Mm-hmm. I'm opting out of that podcast. I'm opting out of that business. I'm opting out of those things. And just like you, you know, I try and make all the best decisions possible, but I also have an iPhone in my pocket. I also have these things, but it's because without those things, I can't do what I'm trying to do and put that out into the world. And so I know that there's a necessary evil to some of it, but it doesn't mean that all of those things are necessarily evil, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah and, and that's that's the thing I would say about corporations is I, I don't find corporations to be evil. In fact, I think they're a part of everyday life. And, and the thing with minimalism is not about us removing ourselves from all of the existing systems. It's about how can we live better within them? Yeah. And how can we question them in a way that is useful? Uh, and, and that's the other thing. It's not about... Um, um, what's the term that Jonathan Haidt has? And uh, he has a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, he talks about, um, I don't want to say social terrorism, but that's not it. It's uh, um, where he talks about basically, you know, people are using social media now to, and also our institutions like academia to, um, to basically hold hostage uh, conversation uh, and instead intimidate social intimidation mm, is yeah. the thing where where people come out and act as if they are trying to have a conversation and, and 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 but really they're trying to be the morality police my view is correct and anyone who questions it then is therefore not just incorrect but evil yeah. and uh, I think that becomes really dangerous because it blocks the 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 path toward communication toward toward a more meaningful interaction with these things. So we you and I can sit here and have a conversation about advertisements. And and by the way, if it does sound like semantics, and and if we're using the terms promotion and advertisements interchangeably, that that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I tend to make a distinction. Uh, we have a long essay on our website called "Can We Have an Honest Conversation About Advertisements?" And the thesis of that is. Well, first off, advertisements suck. That that is our thesis. Totally agree with you. But we also want to acknowledge that in some cases they're somewhat useful, and there are some advertisements that are actually better than other advertisements. And, and I actually find some value, especially in living in Los Angeles. The billboards here are way better <laughs> yeah, than sure. in they Jacksonville, Florida. They have to yeah. be. Though. It's it, right. It's it's the own your weird mentality in billboards. So it's like if you don't do your billboard differently here, no one will notice it because there are so many. So you mm-hmm. have to stand out. You have to do it differently. And I do think that there is something really interesting about the semantics of this is that you have to come to terms with what matters to you mm-hmm. and what you do every single day of your life. And if you don't, then you're going to find yourself unhappy, making bad choices, making you know enemies of people. I don't know if people are actually making enemies, but you know what I mean. Uh, and I think for me, I've just really come to terms with some of these things where I know that you and I aren't in alignment with some of the projects that I've done, but I think we're still in alignment as people because mm-hmm. our core values are still in alignment. Yeah. And we can have a conversation about this where we go back and forth and we may even leave and go, I still disagree with him on this, but 
I still like you. Like, right. I still want to have dinner with you later. You know, right. like, I'm not going to cancel it. I mean, maybe. I don't know. It depends <laughs> on what you say. <laughs> well, I, I think the, the thing to, to point out here is when we're talking about whether it's marketing or promotions or advertisements, these are our opinions with respect to them, and it's not black or white. Where where I say advertisements suck, what, what I mean that... I, I, First off, it's slightly hyperbolic, but yeah. um, and and it's supposed to it's supposed to evoke some sort of emotion when we say that. But what I'm really saying is they suck to me, and my life would probably be better if I didn't see the five thousand advertisements I see every day. But living in LA, I'm still I'm still better off seeing the advertisements here than when you were in Jacksonville, Florida, and it's like ambulance chaser and then like vasectomy doctor (laughs) right right (laughs) and all it is and the ones here i'm like oh i didn't know i didn't know that you know whatever stranger things was out you know and 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 so i probably do get more value i think it's probably still uh errors on the side of i get less value and they are more intrusive and i really do think they're the greatest problem with respect to our current media landscape um they they hold people hostage because you can't talk about certain things. You become we, we've we've used this this term now. Uh, we've turned the word platform into a verb. Yeah. I can't believe you're giving this person a platform or you're platforming this person. <laughs> and as soon as I start hearing hearing words like that, I'm like, oh, you have an agenda uh, that that. Um, what you're trying to do is you are in essence actually trying to deplatform someone else, and and. Uh, I get really turned off by that because it becomes that that social interference uh, that um, that doesn't lend itself to conversation at all, and that's why I think conversations like these are are really important because they're helpful to people. We're we're not beholden to anyone. Like, yeah, we have another film coming out with Netflix, and it's great. But if they were to come to us tomorrow and be like, "Hey, we don't want to do this film with you," I'd be like, "All right, that's yeah. fine with me." Like, uh, I would prefer to have it on Netflix because they actually the one of the great their their great pitch to us is, "Hey, we don't do advertisements," <laughs> yeah. and yeah. Uh, it's better to show up here than it, than if you guys were to do a TV deal with Bravo, and all of a sudden it's like, "Hey." The Minimalist brought to you by Tide. <laughs> um, that just wouldn't work for us necessarily. Yeah. Uh, I think it, this is probably a good time to transition to, to how we met, which was in, in 2013. Um, you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, can I tell your story? Yeah. So uh, we both were asked to speak at this conference, Fargo, North Dakota, uh, called Miss Vicon. Unfortunately, Miss Vicon doesn't happen anymore, but a beautiful event, an amazing event. It was it was three years, and, and then it was done. And, like, there's something... I really miss it. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it's the only it it set the bar so high that I I don't think Same. I've ever been to any other yeah. conference where so, incredible shout out to AJ Leon and Melissa Leon. At some point, you haven't had AJ on the show or Melissa. On no, the show he's either. he's in our documentary though. And yeah, it tends to be people's favorite part. Oh, of the documentary. he's unbelievable. He's just one of my favorite humans ever, and and you guys are too. So, <laughs> oh. uh, but so I was a speaker in 2013, but this was at the end of my I reassure business. So this business had made 1.2 million dollars. I had grown it to eight people because I thought it had to scale up. I'd worked with 1,600 brands, ten of which. Were in the Fortune 100. I was just feeling like I was doing everything right, but then the business crumbled in 2012. And so in 2013, I'd let everyone go. I had $124,000 in debt. I'd gained 50 pounds and I was miserable. I mean, truthfully, like I just, without it, without Caroline, I probably would have gone to a dark place. Mm. So I give her a lot of credit for that. So I get asked to speak at this event. You guys probably don't know this. Many people who were at Misfit don't. I had to ask them to pay for my plane ticket because I did not have money on a credit card. I could afford it. Mm. And they, Melissa paid for it. 
So that was incredible. So so I showed up and I'm feeling like a fraud from the second I get there because I'm like, why am I going to speak? Like everything I've done, like I'm falling apart. So I hear you speak and you tell your story of climbing the corporate ladder, buying the bigger house, spending all the money, doing all things, getting into debt. And I'm like, okay, I know I'm not as handsome and my hair is not even close to as great as this guy, (laughs) but this is like, I can feel my story in this. And I just remember when you finished talking, I was, I just felt like this was a shift in me of, I have to do something to change this. And you know, you talked about minimalism, you talked about Ryan. I was like, where is this Ryan guy? Like, why isn't he here? (laughs) And luckily he came the next year. So I got to meet him, but I was so moved by this conversation. And when you guys were talking about, you know, minimalism is not a new thing. And the reason for me, why I've seen from the outside, why minimalism has become kind of like the zeitgeist in society now is because enough people are talking about it in their own unique ways that it's resonating so much with different people. So the way you guys talk about it resonates so well with me, but like a Leo Babauta, it doesn't resonate with me. And, And that to me is the shift that I found. So when we were at this event, when I finally got up on stage, super felt like a fraud then afterwards. But now my mind is spinning of like, I need to change my life. I need to do, you know, uproot everything. So Srini, uh, who has a podcast as well, he was there. He was just going to do a Q&A with me um, and start asking questions. And I just blacked out. Like I didn't physically blacked out, but I kind of went to this place where the transparency core value first emerged. And I just unloaded on everybody and was like, my business is failing. I'm in debt. I'm feeling terrible. I feel like a fraud for even being here. And I remember for like 45 minutes, I don't know what I said. <laughs> but at the end, people were crying and clapping. Now, that's just also misfit. It wasn't just me. Yeah. Like, that happened with every talk. Well, the beautiful thing about, about I mean, I don't know how many people were there that first year, but he... he Under 100. Yeah, yeah. Th- but it was that was intentional. Like he mm-hmm. And so you... You're with this crowd. Let's say it was roughly with the people he had volunteering and stuff, maybe 120 people there yeah. total. But he did that. He, he curated that audience. Like everyone had to apply. And like if you wanted to be there, uh, there was a long waiting list of people who wanted to be there yeah. beyond the 120 who were there. But when you arrived, you didn't know who was a speaker, who was not, because you weren't. It, I didn't feel delineated. Like I didn't feel like I was a speaker there. I, I just felt like I was part of this conference, and and that was nice because Ryan and I go speak at the at different conferences now, and and you feel like okay, no, I'm part of the speakers bureau or whatever. Yeah. But there, I just felt like I was a participating member, and part of my participation meant I stood up and 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 talked about whatever I talked about. I don't even remember what I talked yeah. about. No, so you told I, your story. I, and, yeah. I think it's great that it, it, it I mean, I, I'm really grateful that it, it affected you in any way at all, but I don't even remember like giving yeah. the talk. I remember I, I remember the the conference significantly and, and and the impression that it made on me but i i don't remember my my participation that much at all it's great that i had any value at all yeah and and i remember meeting colin there as well and colin yeah. told his story and uh, my buddy greg hartle who i'm still incredibly good friends with told his story and you know just all these people in this special event and, and i think like again i don't mean to keep going back to my book i'm not trying to shill it but this conference was so weird, mm-hmm. right? Like this conference owned its weird so hard yes. from the chairs that were borrowed from people who lived in town. They weren't the crappy chairs that we all sit in. The The food was made there. You sat around, you ate with everybody. You didn't know who the speakers were. That never happens at events. And even in the boring moments of the conference, what did AJ do? He had a slam poet doing slam poetry while we were all milling around waiting for something to happen. And yeah. it was all of these things that that event, it still make, it gives me chills thinking about it because I, I will never go to an event as great as that event was. Yeah. And all I had, the part of it was, I begged them to pay for my plane ticket so that I could go because I had a story to tell and then my life changed after that event. And and it really, I think those things in life, if you can find those things, 
you search for them and you try and go to them and you show up for them and you may be an introvert and you don't want to go to a conference because you feel, but if it feels like, man, there could be something to this, like this is different, this is weird, this could change me, you got to lean into those things. Yeah, I, I remember getting asked to go to the conference and uh, we said no. We said no uh, once, twice, three times. I said no because I was like in a play. So I had an obligation. Like I had to, you know, I had performances that I had to go to. So it was an easy no for me. For uh, Josh and Colin, you just don't tell AJ no. No, you can't. You, you can't. Yeah, well, you can try. You can try, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. the Kate we said no originally. We Googled Misfit Conference and it was something in Texas oh. that was like a church revival group. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, they're not going to pay us to come out. And yeah. like, we have to find our own transportation. And I'm like, I don't know about that. But anyway, like, we ended up uh, eventually figuring out what it was. And, and, I, it was Colin and I just we just drove from Missoula to Fargo, which is like an eighteen hour drive. And then they came back just like raving about yeah. how awesome the conference was. And then I was super jealous that I didn't go. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then I went two thousand and fourteen and it was amazing. But you know what? I mean it did only happen three years, but there's something beautiful about that conference being a temporary thing. Absolutely. Because I'll tell you, there are, and I'm not going to name them because I don't want to put down other conferences I've been to. There are other conferences I've been to like the first year they were uh, you know, in, inceptionized the the second year and then like by the third year, I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to this thing anymore. Yeah. Like yeah. this is this is way, this is not what it was when it first started. And uh, there's something about AJ and Melissa, like just doing three years of it and kind of walking away and leaving us talking about it, about how this is the best conference we've ever been to. Like that, <laughs> if we ever do a conference, it's going to be, that. that's what it'll be, like one or two years. Yeah, We say yeah. the same thing for our Wandering Aimfully community. That's the membership group that my wife and I run. They ask us all the time, are you guys going to do events? Because we try and curate an online community that feels different and feels weird and feels unique. And so everyone kind of knows if you guys do an event, it's going to be so weird and so unique. But we just haven't found the time and availability to do it. And we know the undertaking that even just a percentage of misfit, what it would take to do that. Mm -hmm. And I would want to do it differently, right? I, I don't want to you know, confuse what we would do with misfit. But you're right. I think there's something so interesting about in-person connection that we've lost when it comes to social media, when it comes to online businesses, when it comes to even podcasting and YouTube. This connection that literally we're going to have today I know is going to deepen our relationship mm -hmm. for years. And you guys have done that on the road for however many stops you've done, hundreds yeah, at this hundreds. point. Yeah. And that's, I think, how your community has grown so strong. And it's how I think people lose sight of getting started in business or building relationships is, oh, I'll just stay online. And you can't just stay online. Mm -hmm. You have to show up to certain things as uncomfortable as it might be because it will deepen the connection so much. Yeah, yeah. I think online sort of augments and, and it can amplify significantly right. what you're doing. Yeah, and it's I an think accent. that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and and it can be it can become a large part of what you do, but also realizing it all started with you know with Ryan whether it's his packing party like that wasn't an online exactly. thing. It was me and him in his condo. Uh, boxing up a bunch of stuff, pretending he was moving. <laughs> like it, it, th there was nothing online about it. In fact, we filmed parts of it and lost the camera to it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you lost my book. Uh, I get it. There's a theme. There's a theme. No, I, I, I think Ryan was just ashamed of the footage. Yeah, oh, it was yeah, so yeah. bad. <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah, yeah no, I, I definitely like lost that on purpose. Yeah. yeah. Jordan and I were talking before this. I was talking about my flip cam that I recorded all of my first I wear your shirt videos on. Was yeah. a flip cam. Oh, and wow. like that's what this was. Yeah. Wait, yeah. yeah, I didn't tell any any of the sponsors that paid me that that was what I was going to use, but it's all I could afford and it's what I could figure out. And yeah, I think you just have to start that way. But I, I think even that, like the packing party example is such a great example of 
that creates such a memorable experience mm-hmm. that you couldn't have just by maybe like watching a YouTube video and doing it on your own. When you have other people that are there, that texture, that context, it all just layers in and becomes something that you never forget. And it's why you guys continue to talk about it because then I have a relation to that story where I think like, oh, should I do a packing party with like my close friend? And we talk about it like in the book, I, I wrote about minimalism and my flavor of minimalism is mm-hmm. kind of how I've thought about it over the years because I don't want to just copy you guys. I want to figure out my own thing. And I talked about like us going in our closet and like doing a closet clean out and making a rule afterwards of the one in one out rule. Mm-hmm. So like when we buy anything, if one thing comes in, one thing has to leave. Yeah. And so that's just like a hard and fast rule for us. But we figured out our own way to do that that now creates our own context. So when people hear our stories, they go, oh, I want to do the one in one out rule or the capsule wardrobe or like any of these things that we all hear about. It just creates that kind of connection to that person. But it is it does kind of start in person, not just in an online thing. Dude, I love when I hear people like coming up with their own recipes because yeah. if someone came to me, they're like, I did my packing party and next I'm going to write a book and then I'm going to do a podcast just like you and Josh and then <laughs> I plan on doing a documentary. Like that is, that's that's not, that's conforming really. Yeah. But yeah. like hearing people like come up to me and they're like, Ryan, I really like what you do. I agree with about 50% of what you say. <laughs> and, uh, me too. Right. Yeah. Half of what he says. <laughs> right, exactly. You guys keep talking. I'm going to use the bathroom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, I I love that, man. Because when someone comes up to me and they say, I agree with what half of what you do, for me, like that is telling me like, okay, great, I'm giving you tools to think for yourself. And I, I yeah, I think that's what you're doing, man. You're giving, like that's what Own Your Weird does. Like it, it, it is showing people how to think for themselves, to think outside the box. You're not giving uh, a recipe in here. You're giving your recipe, but there are certainly ingredients that people can take from. And that, to me, that is what, uh, meaningful work is man is when you're able to give people some ingredients to to help form their own recipes the subtitle of the book before and the, the reason it's not the subtitle is because we could never get a good version of it was the anti-blueprint to life success and relationships something like that mm. and it just never quite because it was like well, why would you pick up the book <laughs> if it's not going to help you at all but it, it it's kind of the thing that i weave through there which is if you just if someone just follows the minimalism path that you guys have laid out, mm. it won't be as great for them. I think starting with a packing party or with the minimalism game is just such a great start to it. Then you figure out your flavor of it. And right. so for me, everything that I've written in the book, and I say this in the very beginning, is these are my stories, but it's not about me. I wrote this book for you. Mm-hmm. And it's for you to figure out based on all the weird things that I've done in life, business, relationships, love, all of that. What is your version of that that just makes you feel whole, that makes you feel great? And again, it goes back to the very beginning of this chat. Like it's not gonna feel like an overnight change. It's not gonna happen that way. But if you start to have that mental shift of, oh, you know what, I do have some toxic relationships around me. I need to change some of those. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's getting rid of one bad friend who just never supports anything that I do. And we've had that, like we've all had that, that situation we've had to come up against. Yeah. And so I think it's this constant idea of you're creating your own, what I like to think of as your treasure map in life. Mm -hmm. And so there's no straight line. It's a curved dotted map with like a shipwreck and a kraken and like all these things and you know, whatever visual metaphors you want. That to me is how I look at life. And I think so many people think it's gonna be a straight line when I buy into minimalism or when I buy into whatever the next thing is. And it's not, it's your own dotted journey. It's your own kind of weaving yeah. path. And that's just what I try and help people do. And there's little exercises in the book that do that as well. But uh, I think you guys have found that too, is you have to just discover your own little isms, but maybe mm. you start with something that feels like, okay, this gives me a foundation yeah. to get going. Yeah, I mean, like the packing party, I started with that because it was a surefire way for me to change my state and for me to help to help me see a different perspective on what I was doing with my life. And I think that's, that's what 
the packing party story does. That's what the uh, surfer app last name, that's what that story does. I mean, it helps people kind of look through a, a different lens of how they can approach different problems. But I'll tell you, man, what I like about how you talk about your life and uh, what you you know go into the book is it's not just this story about winning. It's not just about how Jason woke up one day and he was like, I'm going to win. Yeah. And then tomorrow I won some more. And then the next day I won <laughs> yeah. more. It is these. Uh, it, it is this uh, a story with a little bit of struggle in there. And I think that's what really makes for a good story, man. And, and like to be open to talk about MisfitCon and how you had to you know practically beg Melissa to pay for your plane ticket. I mean, those are the stories that people need to hear because we've all been there, man. Yeah. 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 I think we all deal with the ups and downs of life in different ways. And I've just found that the more that I share, not all of it because you just don't want to share everything that goes wrong but the more that i share when things go wrong the more that you realize other people show up and go i really resonate with that Mm -hmm. like now i don't see you as just this guy who does does these weird things i see you as another human and Mm -hmm. i see you as a flawed human just like me and you mess up and you you know everything isn't going right for you and uh, what we were just talking about is how you know it's not just all a bunch of wins in life Mm -hmm. and so i think for me i love the transparency part of sharing the ups and downs you know Mm -hmm. i now wear it as a badge of honor that i got into debt at the time, it was miserable. Mm. But now I love talking about it because I've gotten through that. I looked at it as a game. I, I thought about it as the the original Donkey Kong with little Mario jumping over the barrels. And every level that he climbed up a ladder was one credit card I paid off. And so that creating that game metaphor, it actually helped me get out of debt. And it helped me figure out, oh, this doesn't have to be crushing. It doesn't have to like rip my soul out of my body because that's what it felt like. And I don't have to be ashamed of it. I can reframe this. Mm. And that's so much of just thinking about life that way in every instance of business. Like how can I reframe how we think about writing a book? And so that's why I did the sponsorship thing in the, in the first book. And all of these little reframings for me have really helped things become successful, but also have things where people can really relate to them. Cause then they go, oh, that's, I, I've thought about doing something that way or, or any of those different things that people might say to you, like you guys have probably gotten tons of, of like, oh, I wanted to do the same thing, but I haven't done it yet. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, there's a difference between thinking about doing something and actually doing the thing. And it's not gonna be easy, but you do get a lot of rewards just by going through the ups and downs of it. Yeah. With, with all the different things that you do, um, it also adds nuance to your story because you might, to a lot of people be known as the I wear your shirt guy or or we'll talk about your last names here in a second uh, but as you know, Ryan and I were most known as the minimalists and that has been a great Trojan horse for us to get in here and talk about whatever we want to talk about whether it's nonconformity or we're talking about religion or we're talking about values yeah, yeah architecture yeah like all these things that, that we have the opportunity to talk about because we're the minimalist. Minimalism ends up being you know, 20 to 30% of what we actually talk about. But we talk about all these other things that are sort of adjacent to that. So your story becomes more nuanced as, as you grow. Uh, when we met, what was your last name? Uh, last name was headsets.com when we met in 2013. Yeah. yeah. So, so well, let's, let's talk about this journey. Cause you, <laughs> so you've had, you've had at least four different last six, names. Six total. Yeah. So you had six. So this is why I sold my last name. So this is why for me, this decision was easy. So 2012, I was on my third last name. So a couple stepfathers, I don't get my sense of identity from Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. I don't get it from Milburn. I haven't had it my whole life. Mm-hmm. So I found some of my identity through the I Wear Shirt Project because I was putting myself out there. I was figuring out who I was. I was finding these core values. You know, Caroline was really helping me with all this stuff. And I started to realize like, okay, I'm a weirdo. Like I'm just a weird person. <laughs> and this is part of what I love about even myself. And that sounds weird to say, but it, it really was helpful to think about it that way. But 
So getting to the last name. So 2012, my mom wanted me to hop on Skype. And this is where like the bass drop comes in. And <laughs> and I've never been on Skype with my mom ever. And so I'm like, this is kind of weird. So I hop on and she just tears in her eyes in the video. And oh. I think everyone listening to this can relate to like, you've had that moment with your family like, uh-oh, like what's going on? And she was mm-hmm. like, I'm getting a divorce from your, your stepfather. They've been together for like 13 years at the time. And she was crushed. And the circumstances were not good. So, you know, I'm just trying to be lighthearted and add some love. And I was like, all right, well, screw this guy. I'm going to sell his last name and like, you know, shove it in his face. Because I was really deep in the I reassure thing at the time. Uh And so my mom was like, oh, that's funny. You know, like that brought this idea. Then I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I was like, well, hold on. Now I don't want this last name. So wait, that was your second last Third. name? So wait, so can we go so, back to the sure, beginning? So you were born with a last name. I was born with a last name like most people. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so I was Stein, Jason Stein when I was born. Uh-huh. That lasted, I think, like eight or nine years. And I became Jason Hanchi. So that was mom's second husband. Uh-huh. That one was a tough one. That one always messed up when people called. Uh, then it was Jason Sadler. So that was what like my name everywhere was. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that name was where I ran into the divorce, the call with mom. And you weren't paid for any of these last these were all just you know charitable donations that i gave away uh so i ran into this situation where i went i really don't want this last name Mm -hmm. i don't want any of the previous last names i had how do you find a lot do do i just grab the white pages is that still a thing like do i just flip through and like uh okay that one and i just said i've been getting Uh, two two all right (laughs) okay yeah uh i've been getting all of these sponsors for all this other stuff in my life not just the t-shirt thing i had road trip and a fitness challenge and all i was like what if I just had a sponsored last name for a year? I'm not selling my soul. I'm not giving this up forever. Uh, it's not a tattoo on my forehead. And w- would people pay for this? And so I bought the domain, buymylastname.com. Shockingly available, guys. I don't know why. <laughs> no one had done this before. And I built a little auction site, started at $0, said it was going to be available for 30 days, sent an email to a small list of 600 people. That was it. That's all the, the email list I had. And I thought it would sell for 5,000 bucks. I was like, okay, I have enough notoriety with this I reassure thing. I've had enough sponsors. 5,000 bucks would be a great win. Cool story, whatever. At the end of 24 hours, the bidding was over $30,000. Wow. And I was floored. I was like, what? Like, this is crazy. But what I will say- What were the companies who, who were bidding uh, so upwards of $30,000? I did two fun things that I will give myself a little bit of credit for. One was we had a leaderboard of the people who bid, so you could actually see the names as they came in. And second was we had a fan leaderboard of what names they wanted. Oh, now, wow. I was smart enough That's that great. I had a developer filter out all the words that you would think would be up there. But number one the entire time was Jason Cheez-Its. That was number one, like fan voted. And I was for it. I was like, yes, let's do this. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was just a bunch of like, my buddy Alan was a real estate guy. So he wanted like Alan Evans real estate <laughs> would have been my, my last name. Uh, I was actually in talks with Ford for a little while, but their promotion schedule for their stuff was like three years ahead. So they were trying to think like, what could we squeeze in? Like we can't do it. It's too like fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had like, there was a bunch of like, Wait, bef- that would have been like an easy out though. Like, I'm Jason Ford. Well, they, they wanted to do it with a specific vehicle. Oh. So like, this was actually like Jason before expedition. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> Forward expedition. Yeah. Uh, but no, it, and there was a lot of verbiage on the side of like, I'm not going to represent political stuff. So I'd learned, right, through the first couple of years, the things I didn't want. Like uh-huh. nothing political, nothing offensive, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing like, divisive. Yeah. Exactly. And and so I ended up at the, the last couple minutes of the auction getting a phone call. I don't even know how the guy got my number. And he was like, hey, uh, I think his name was, I forget his name, Brian or something. He was like, hey, uh, I'm from headsets.com. Uh, we are a real company. We, I've, already overbid my budget that my boss gave me on your last name, which was $40,000. He was like, if I spend $5,000 more, can you guarantee me that I will win? 
And I was like, I can't. But if you just bid at the last minute, like odds are good. And he was like, all right, fine. And like hung up the phone. <laughs> I thought I pissed him off. And then I saw the bid come in at the end. And so that's what it became was Jason Headsets, D-O-T-C-O-M. Um, and this was on your driver's license and everything. I went down to the courthouse. So that's how the book opens is like me sitting in court with my lawyer in front of a judge, him asking me like, have you uh, been convicted of any felonies? Are you trying to leave the country? <laughs> and I'm just sitting there going like, what is, oh, he thinks I'm like trying to like escape like fraud or something else. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm just an idiot. <laughs> like I just <laughs> wanted a new last name and make money from it. So that was how the last name got sold. So I changed it legally everywhere. Uh, I would check in at hotels and I'd give them my driver's license and they'd be like, uh, no, this has your business on it. What's your name? And I'm like, no, no, that's a driver's license. Like that's legit my last name. Uh, and lived with this sponsored last name for a year and then became Surfer App, which was the cover of my first book. Um, so I thought it would be fun to sell it again because the cover of a first book is pretty good notoriety. So yeah. that's why I did it a second time. And then the new last name is my great grandfather's last name who actually was an entrepreneur. I didn't know anything about him. And my grandmother actually told me his story and I was like, oh, I want to pass, like, keep this name going because it stopped with him. So that's where Zook came in. That's great. Right, so is Zook here to stay? Zook is here to stay, yeah. I, okay. I went through the gamut of changing my last name too many times. Six last names is enough for a lifetime, I think. <laughs> so uh, that's part of it. Yeah, it's a lot. But again, like it just, when you know the whole story, it becomes so much easier not to go, oh, you're just an asshole who sold his last name. It's <laughs> like, Oh, I kind of get it. Like with everything yeah. you were doing and going through, like kind of makes sense, you you know, and, and just having some of those values in place of not just taking any last name. Headsets.com was actually a great company. Their CEO is awesome. Surfer app was two guys who wanted to start a surfing app and they just were looking for a way to get some exposure. They got a New York Times article out of it. Like there was a lot of really cool stuff that happened with that story. So it was Are they still around? They're still around. It's not, it never kind of did what they hoped they wanted it. They wanted it to do, but they still super happy with it. Like they never could have gotten their name in the New York Times and in the front of the business section. So yeah. it worked out. Yeah. And and last before we dive into some more questions here, uh, you did a project called Buy My Future. And it's, it's not what you would think. They don't like own you. <laughs> yeah. And again, I've learned from these things, right? Like what started yeah. out as a kitschy idea to wear t-shirts for a living. I picked up some business things along the way, and sure. I, I only did that through failing miserably quite a bit. Uh, but with the Buy My Future idea, so after I Wear Your Shirt stopped, after the last name stuff was done, I wanted some easy wins, guys. Like, this stuff was difficult, and it takes a lot of energy to pour yourself into all mm. these projects. And and I started seeing online courses coming about, and I was like, oh, I, I really like teaching what I've learned. And I do think that there's something really interesting about the education system being uprooted and being a weird way to learn is you go on YouTube and you watch a bunch of videos or you go on Skillshare or whatever, um, or you buy a writing course. If someone has a writing course that you want to take, uh, uh, and How so to <laughs> and there's an advertisement for you. Ooh, coming back. Oh, it's uh, a promotion. No one paid me to, <laughs> no. to place uh, that here. Uh, so anyway, I, I started creating some courses and I started creating some software applications and I just saw that I had too many things that I was trying to promote and to, try and get people to sign up for and pay that were a good exchange of value, I thought. And I realized there's got to be a better way than having eight things I'm constantly promoting or talking about. Like, I feel like every tweet I have to put out is something to promote something else because mm -hmm. that was just the way that I had done it for years. And so I was drinking coffee one morning and I thought to myself, what if I just bundled all this shit together? <laughs> like, what if I just made one package of things? Because people seem to like multiple of them. And I kind of gave maximum value of all of my stuff and then I got maximum customer value with one price for these things. Mm -hmm. And the future element became the hook. So it was buy all these things for a great price, but also get anything I make in the future at no cost forever. 
And there are some caveats, right? Like I wrote this book, I can't give everyone a copy of the printed book because I would have to pay that out of pocket. So mm -hmm. there are some things that people know that like I can't do, but if I make an online course, you get it. Like as soon as it's done, it's easy to give you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, again, I thought this would sell like 10 or 20 spots and it would just be a nice jump and 178 people bought it for a thousand bucks. Wow. And it was, it, that reaction is the same that I had. It's incredible, man. And it actually created this really cool community of people who just opted in and said, I like what you're doing. You know, it's my own version of a Patreon, right? It's it's just a unique way, it's a weird way to do that. And that project evolved from buy my future to buy our future with my wife. And now it's our wandering aimfully community is essentially the same thing. Just trying to make things simpler, even though we do have a lot of projects, just bringing them all together in one place and just kind of putting those things on a different tilt than most people would. Let's dive into some of these questions here. Dana says, sometimes I feel isolated or weird for not following the status quo. Could you offer suggestions for overcoming those feelings? And so uh, we, we've obviously touched on this at least uh, somewhat uh, orthogonally to, to what Dana's question, but the, the word that stood out here is feelings. Like she's uh, mistaking, I think, like feeling weird with feeling bad. Like mm. if I feel weird, then thus I must feel bad. Mm. Yeah, may, I mean, maybe the, the, she's feeling different or so... Another word that stands out is isolated. So I know that when I feel really different, I start to feel like I am isolated from everyone else. I mean, my biggest piece of advice is own it. Nice. You got to own your weird. Yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly what your book is about. So it's not about finding finding a way to conform to others. It's more about showing to others why you being uniquely you is is a good thing. Yeah. It's also about understanding that you are fighting a little bit of our human instinct. So we've had the herd mentality for as long as we've been on this planet. Yeah. And when you go away from the herd, that's going against our built-in instincts. Mm -hmm. And so in the time that we live now, it's actually much easier to go against the herd because it's not just leaving the tribe and now you're against the herd. It's saying something different on social media, starting a different business, leaving mm. your nine to five job to start a unicorn furniture company that you wanted to start. <laughs> it's any of these things. And if you do take a moment to go, oh, you know what? This is probably a little bit of human instinct that I'm kind of going against. That's okay. Yeah. You know, it's gonna feel a little bit different to stand out from other people. That's all right. I can I can kind of take that in and just kind of have a moment with it and then have a little gratitude that I even had the ability to do that. Yeah. And I tend to have that every day because I know that I'm extremely lucky to be born in the time, and maybe fortunate better than lucky, but to be born in the time that I was born in yeah. so that I had the ability to do the things that I've done with the mechanisms in place of social media and those things. Mm -hmm. So I think you're totally right. I think it does boil down to the feeling that you have is a little bit separate from maybe just what is around you and then just accepting that that's okay. Yeah. I think it's, it's what's fascinating here is some people can feel isolated. Other people in the same circumstance can feel uh, significant. Because like I'm, yeah, there's look because it's a weird thing that we have. We we have this desire for connection. We want to be similar enough to other people that we feel connected to them. But at the same time, we have this desire to feel significant or unique because you don't want to be completely like everyone else because then you don't feel like your life is even worthwhile. Well, what makes me different at all? And so I think part of just embracing that other side, instead of using words like weird, uh, if, if that is turning you off, like you've, you've embraced the word weird and, and as a good thing, yep. but if there's a bridge for you, maybe the, the bridge is like, well, I'm unique. Yeah. 
yeah. and, and that will help you uh, own your uniqueness first before Absolutely. you can ultimately own your weird. Yeah, and I think you got to look at too, like why you are unique. Instead of like looking at the what what am I and what other people uh, view me as, it's it's why am I the way I am. And if you can look in the mirror and feel good about what you're doing, like and why you're doing it, that's that's some good leverage too. Alan asks. It can seem like you're all alone by taking steps. See, with these isolation terms, right? You're all alone by taking steps to completely go against the status quo. What are some tips for finding a new community when going against what most people would normally do? Do this is like the age to find a new community. I mean, we are living in the time where I feel like it's really, really easy to find people who are like you. I mean, you know, a, a hundred years ago. I mean, you can't just go to meetup.com <laughs> and find people who are interested in the things you're interested in. And you can't just, you know, go to Facebook and find groups that, that you can fit into. So, I mean, I think if, if you're going to find a new community, like now, now's the time to do it. Yeah. To me, there really is a push and pull with social media of, I see the bad of it very easily, yeah. but I also see the good of it very easily. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes very simple to find your group online by searching for your group and mm -hmm. by looking into those things. And it's like we talked about with MisfitCon, like we wouldn't have known that that would have been so great for us had we not gone, I'm going to take a chance on this. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and by taking that chance, you realize, oh, wow, this is really great. But sometimes you take that chance and it doesn't pay off and you just have to take more chances and hope that they pay off than you do that don't. And you're going to run into that. And Ooh, also realizing the, yeah. the, the sunk cost of like, don't hold on to like, okay, I took that chance, but now I have to stick with that community because I tried it out and I've already invested three weeks of my life into this. And so mm. now I'm stuck with it forever. No, no, no. That's a sunk cost. You've invested the time. Be willing to walk away at any time if it's no longer adding value. The same is true with some of the, the conferences you talked about, Ryan. Like if you go to a conference one year and it's great and the second year it's just okay and the third year and you're like, well, wait a minute. This has turned into a networking event. <laughs> right. Or, or yeah. it could be that you're just no longer getting what you initially got from it. And that's yeah. a, it, you don't go to kindergarten for three years and expect to have like the third year of kindergarten be as, as equally beneficial as the first year. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you outgrow the thing. You got what you needed to get from the community. And now it's time to maybe go start your own community or be a leader as opposed to someone who's just embedded in a particular community. Yeah. The one thing I'll add is like, you've got to let go of any expectation too. Like when you are when you are reaching out to a new community, like you cannot you gotta you have to alleviate as many expectations as possible. Be open and be, you know, ready for anything. But uh if I wanted to go, you know, join a knitting meetup group and I thought like this is it. Like I'm really passionate about knitting and this is gonna be it and then I go there and I don't like the people in the group. I'm actually not that passionate about it. Um, I could very easily start to get down on, oh man, that's what I get for branching out. Yeah. It's like, yeah. You, you can't, you can't get down on yourself if you try something new and you don't like it or the community is not right for you. That's okay. Like go out and do that 10 more times. Like go out and fail as much as possible when trying to join a new community. Um, that's yeah, actually expect to fail. Maybe that's what it is. Like maybe yeah. that have to be the expectation because you're probably going to get much better than that. And if you much uh, think about that. giving more than you get when you join a new community. So we have a community, we have a paid community that people can join and they ask us all the time, how can I get the most out of this community? And I'm like, you're thinking about it wrong. Yeah. You need to show up for other people because you're new. So you need to give value before you can get value from this. And mm. when you do, we see it every time when someone shows up and they're answering questions, they're being helpful. They're not asking for anything 
people love those people. Mm-hmm. But when you show up to the party and you run in and you're like, I've got a thing, look at my thing. And you know, you take that yeah. thing with however you want to take it. Uh-huh. People just go like, ah, like, what are you doing? Like, why are, you, why are you being that way? And so I really do think with any of these communities, having that mindset of you're gonna fail, you may not find the right one, let go of some cost bias, but also let me show up and actually give some value here. Yeah and not just take as soon as I get here. And I think that's really an important mindset for trying to find your place where you don't feel isolated is you showing up and being helpful too. Absolutely. When in doubt, find ways to contribute. Mm -hmm. And and I think you'll start to find a community because by the way, you also start to feel the fulfillment uh, that you get from giving that you cannot get from just consuming or taking. James asks, I come from a family of wildly successful individuals. Sometimes I feel like I'm standing in the shadow of success, employed as a case manager, working two jobs and supporting my family of two while my fiance is in college. How do you buck the status quo of, quote, material and financial success and prevent yourself from living beyond your means Mm. to fit in? Mm. Well, James, man, these boulders that you've picked up, I mean, you picked them up. I mean, you, you can absolutely put some of these down. I'm not saying to can't just quit your job tomorrow. I mean, it's a process of putting these boulders down, but James, you get to choose what you're going to carry, man. Yeah. And as I would say, start to look at why these things seem important to you. Mm. So for me, I remember my goals were have a million dollars, own a Ferrari and have a big house. And then I sat back one day and I went, wait, do I just want to live the MTV Cribs life? Like, I don't think I actually want any of these. Things. I just like that show. And I started to actually look at these things and to go, these don't actually matter to me. I don't want these. I can't fit in a Ferrari number one. I am tall, so it's not going to work. But also, I just don't need this stuff. And you guys talk about this so much. I'm preaching to the choir here. But I really do feel like if you put these things under a microscope and really figure out, do they matter to you as a person, not to you as a family member who's trying to fit in, you might find oh, I actually rally against all of these. Mm. And I want a smaller, more, you know, not extravagant life. And I don't want, I want to put these boulders down, like mm. you said. And and I just think that there's something to be said for challenging the societal norms that a lot of us get force-fed into through family, through relationships, mm-hmm. and going, yeah, but what, what matters to me? Like, what do I want out of this life? Yeah, I, th- I think living for others is, I mean, that's, I feel like my purpose in life, like giving is living. Like, I want to contribute as much as possible. However... If I don't live for myself first, yep. you then that, your, you don't put your oxygen mask on first. What yeah, happens? Yeah. Then that contribution means nothing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's funny because people will often say, well, minimalism is just a permission to be solipsistic. And it's like, well, first off, we're all a little solipsistic. Like we have to be a little solipsistic. Uh, the world does revolve around me and my life. It revolves around Jason and his life and Josh and his life. But but it that doesn't mean to be selfish. Solipsistic, I don't think, is a necessarily means to be selfish so yeah be a little solipsistic live for yourself but if you're only living for others then you're not really living at all mm. yeah lewis says uh I've, this question is really about guilt i think uh, i've started working less and trying to live my life more and uh, he goes on to say sometimes when i have a day off of work i feel guilty any tips for how to help with this Ooh. Dude, it's so funny. I relate with that because I worked the 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And it was like going, you know, 100 miles an hour and then coming to a complete stop. And there is like a guilt associated with that. Like if I'm not doing anything, then I'm doing something wrong. Did you get that at all in the corporate world? I still haven't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we had Alex Benayan on the podcast recently. He wrote a book called The Third Door. Uh, it's it's a really good book. And, and he... Uh, 
You read that one? Yeah. It was <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, got to keep bringing it back. <laughs> I love you. It doesn't matter. Oh, man. He wants to make me do a spit take uh, on me. Uh, <laughs> the, the, well, it, it, the thing that he said on the podcast really stood out to me is are you, are you spending your time or are you investing your time? Yeah. And I, the thing I really like about, uh, about that framing is m- maybe the guilt, I think the guilt can be useful uh, in many ways because maybe, maybe Lewis, maybe you actually are wasting your time. And if so, how can you, instead of spending it, how can you invest it? Mm. Because taking a day off work doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean that you're doing something that is meaningless or meaningful necessarily. It. It's just a day off of work. What are you doing with that time? Are you investing it in your family, in your community, in your health? And if so, then you can give yourself permission to be happy. But if you're just truly wasting your time, wasting the one life you've been given, then maybe the guilt's appropriate. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the guilt is appropriate no matter what because this is a symptom of something deeper that's going on. So this this is a signal for him to to ask himself some meaningful questions and to see what he, whether he is investing his time or not. Yeah. And I totally agree. If he's, if he's wasting his time, if he's wasting this life, then, then yeah, go ahead and feel guilty. But, but what is that guilt going to drive you towards? Yeah. And I love the way that you guys think about this. We think about it very similarly. I wrote about it in the book is we created a framework called working to live. And the whole ethos behind it is put on your calendar, the things that you want to do in life before you put work on your calendar. So especially if you work for yourself, guess what happens? If you have a nine hour day to fill, you'll fill it with work. Mm -hmm. Unless you are intentional about going, go to the gym first, hang out with my kids, go get lunch with a friend, take two hours to go walk in nature, do these things. And so we really have thought about this in creating a framework where we go, let's prioritize life first. Mm. Then let's create time for work and let's force work to happen in that time. And this is Parkinson's law. If you have a certain amount of hours, you will fill those hours because it's human nature. Mm -hmm. And so we try and rally against this by going, no work, you get two hours today. That is it. Mm -hmm. And other times there will be weeks when we work 60 hours. We've all been there. We all have new things that are coming out. You guys are working on a new film. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. But there are times when you're in between those projects when you may only work five hours a week. And you're probably like me where you see a lot of opportunity maybe you're missing out on or whatever and that's why you feel guilty. I think that's for me when I take a day off why I feel guilty because I just think there's always more work to be done but yet And there always is. Yeah, and it's okay though to not do that work today. (laughs) I could do it later. Right, and I think that's that's the thing we need to be careful. You're never going to get caught up. It's like trying to reach the end of the internet. You're never going to get caught up because there's always going to be another book to write, another film to make, another email to send. And and, and we, we, we can look at all of those things and say, well, I could be doing more, but am I doing enough? I think we're never asking ourselves that, or we're very rarely asking, like, am, what is enough? And that's going to be different for Lewis. It's going to be different for Jason and Ryan and me. It's different for each of us. What is enough? And oh, by the way, enough for me in this, this phase of my life, uh, I've had 2019 has been the worst year of my life. Like by far, there's not even a close second. I've had significant health problems, and um, and, and I've not been able to work 90% of what I 
I've, I've worked 90% less than I usually do. And there's some guilt that initially came along with that, but there had to also be some understanding and some sort of self-empathy in a way to realize, like, I don't have the capacity to do that right now. And I have to explain that to the people closest to me, wh- whether it's my significant other or it's Ryan or Sean and, and, and Jordan and Jess and say, hey, look, I just don't have the capacity to do this right now. And I have to be honest with myself about that because I could... I could probably work a little bit harder, but it would be unhealthy for me right now because I don't have the bandwidth. In fact, the only thing we're doing regularly right now is podcasting. I haven't been writing nearly as much. I the, the social media, I haven't been doing nearly as much of that or basically any of it personally. And and it's because I have I just don't have the bandwidth for that right now. And I'm in a season of my life where I have to take that into consideration. But realizing that enough changes in time. And if I get my health back and, and things are, are on the up, then I'll have more bandwidth. And then I get to decide, okay, what am I going to do with those hours? It doesn't mean automatically, well, 15 hours a day now, we're just going to yep. be working. Yep. No, it's what's the, what's the appropriate thing to do with these hours like you my wife caroline 2019 has been the worst year of her life she's been dealing with crippling anxiety and physical anxiety couldn't get out of bed for months pretty much every day and she has gone through the same journey you have and where you figure out okay this was bad this really sucked you know 90 percent of my time has been zapped whatever it is but I do think a really interesting thing has happened because I've been so close to her and now hearing you talk about this is it starts to really show you some perspective on oh, I actually didn't need to work as much. I didn't need to do as much. And we live in a society that promotes and celebrates doing and hustle and all these things. And I love that you use the word enough because it is a thing in our household that we use all the time. And it's, okay, what is enough for us? What is enough money? What is enough time spent working? What is enough time dedicated to our community? And then what is enough time that maybe we're not spending on ourselves and our relationship and those things? Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to, I mentioned the hot stove moment. Like you almost have to have a shitty 2019 to go, oh, maybe some of the habits that I had before led to some of this, maybe not all of it, but to some of it. And now I need to change that moving forward. And I feel a little bit guilty because I don't work as much and maybe Ryan's carrying the the team or maybe I'm carrying the team for our family, but that's great. That's why I have a team. That's why I'm not doing this all on my own. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I think we all have that to a certain extent. We get to, we get to choose what that team looks like, but we, we all, uh, well, that's not even true anymore. There was a study I saw recently and uh, I, I don't even fully understand it, but I think it was, was this Gen Z or uh, millennials? I'm not sure which, but uh, I think it was millennials uh, where- Who's younger, G, uh, Z or millennials? Millennials are older. Millennials are, are the generation we're on the cusp of. Yeah. We're, we're like Gen X oh, okay. and, 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 and millennial. Okay. Um, and I think it was something like 33% say they don't have close friends. Mm. 23% say they don't even have acquaintances. Wow. I, I don't know how that's possible. How do you not have an acquaintance? So if you Gen Z is, is saying this? Uh, uh, millennials. Or millennials? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think social media has a lot to do with that, man. 100% agree. Because you've got, you've got uh, your Instagram self and then you've got your real life. And I think people focus too much on having a really awesome Instagram self. Right. Which they forsake their real life for. Which leads to the next question perfectly. Holly says, in the age of Instagram influencers, <laughs> how can you help children and teenagers embrace a lifestyle that values meaning, simplicity, and connection in addition to or perhaps in place of mass consumption, competition, and the appearance of internet popularity? So let's talk about this. Uh, first off, I've never been influenced by an influencer. 
Um, Damn it. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm just I don't consider myself. If you call yourself an influencer, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. Right. If that's in your bio, you're already just yeah. Yeah, and and so I actually make it. I make a distinction, and, and every time I tweet that, I've never been influenced by. And people get so mad at me. Yeah. Don't you realize you're an influencer, or or weren't you influenced by Colin Wright, <laughs> and he's an influencer? I'm, I said, and I always say no, he's influential, mm. and there's a difference. He does some work that is meaningful and it creates value, that value influences me. He himself does not influence. Right, it's, he doesn't wake up and be like, I'm an influencer, how am I going to influence today? Exactly. Yeah. And so I, I like to I, I like to make a, a distinction because a, a person who is influential creates something that influences others. The work is the influence. The influencer tries to impart their own seeming wisdom or or popularity uh, to to shape a to, to shape someone else directly without without doing the the drudgery uh, of of creating something that is actually going to shape the conversation the culture etc mm -hmm. uh, our conversation last week with Erwin uh, McManus um, we actually talked a little bit about competition and I think competition uh, the, there are sort of two types. There's there's toxic competition where uh, there's nothing good about it. It's zero sum games um, where there are nothing but winners and losers. And, and uh, I, I remember uh, when we were living in Montana, the uh, I would go to sauna with some of the American Indian tribes there, the the Blackfoot tribe, and uh, the, this guy Tom. He he said. Hey, we don't really understand like the the American sense of competition because in in our tribe like if if Jason loses I lose mm -hmm. and if Jason wins then I win and I think in our culture where it has become highly competitive there is a sense of sort of toxic competition in order for me to win I must beat you yeah. now there are healthy versions of that, you know, sport, it manifests in sports and, and generally in a healthy way. It can be unhealthy there as well. But, you know, two people playing a basketball game uh, against each other, you're going to have a winner and a loser. And I think that can be a good thing. You can learn lessons from that. It drives me crazy when Ella was first playing soccer when she was three or four and they didn't keep score. Like, <laughs> like Because everyone actually is keeping score. We're just pretending that we're not. Mm -hmm. uh, but the kids were keeping score. And the, all the parents are keeping score. There just wasn't a scoreboard. And, and, and so I think maybe what we're looking at here is the, what is, Holly, what is your scoreboard? And if your scoreboard is vapid, empty, trite, if it's the number of followers on Instagram, then, and I'm not saying for you, but even for your kids, they, they will ultimately learn that uh, the hard way or you can try to impart that wisdom on them and saying hey that is a metric but why is that metric meaningful and if you ask them that then you're gonna you're gonna start having they're, they're gonna have to have, start having difficult difficult conversations with you yeah the, the number one scoreboard that holly's kids are going to look at or what holly uses as a scoreboard so i totally agree like holly needs to look at what her scoreboard is that's what her kids are going to mimic um, the other thing too is like, Holly, uh, you don't want to like tell your kids what they can and can't do. Like just, you know, ordering people around that's not meaningful or fun and your kids don't want that. You certainly don't want that, but you can certainly set boundaries. And I struggle with this, like thinking about when Mariah and I have kids, if we ever have kids, I mean, life with kids sounds awesome, but life without <laughs> kids sounds awesome. <laughs> but you know, I struggle with like, 
technology and social media and when is the appropriate age to allow kids to do that and how much technology is appropriate. I think each family is going to have a different answer for that. But but setting up boundaries, helping them uh, to to not just set the boundaries for them, but helping them set their own boundaries, like that is what is going to help your kids live a meaningful life. If you are giving your kids a tablet and then you're walking away and you're using the tablet as a babysitter, that you know what? The tablet makes a great babysitter, but that's not going to create a very awesome person. Um, I, I mean, it's like when I see a two-year-old going through a smartphone better than I can go through a smartphone, mm-hmm. like that is that is an indicator of something that's that's going on that's that is probably not a, a good thing. So, yeah, I, I was at, I was at the hospital yesterday. I had to get an ultrasound, and um, is it a boy or a girl? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no answer. Okay, that's fine. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Surprise! Josh is pregnant. <laughs> and um, uh, we were in the waiting room, and Ella didn't have you know her tablet with her or whatever. And and before I went in to get the ultrasound, um, she just she just kept like every two or three minutes, she said, "I'm bored. I'm bored." And it's like. I said to Captain, hey, you have to sit with your boredom. Yeah. And that's hard for her, obviously, but it's hard for me as a parent, too, because I also want to be like, well, here, just use my phone if you don't have your tablet. This is what's easy. Let me pacify you for a few moments, as opposed to saying, you know what? Sometimes life is boring, but also if you're bored, you're boring. And I'm trying to explain this to Ella. There are things that you can do on your own with your own imagination. You don't always have to be pacified by something. Yeah. And it's hard to explain that to, to a six-year-old, but the the alternative is constantly pacifying her, and that's not setting her up for success in that, the future. That might be one of the like best superpowers or you know things to have in your life is being able to deal with boredom. Like that is That's powerful because like we're not... We don't have many opportunities to be bored these days, especially with technology and teaching a kid how to be comfortable with their boredom. Like that is, you're, you're really doing them a service by allowing them to be bored and be a little, you know, feel a little bit of discomfort so they can learn how to deal with that. I'll tell you, you and like you and Bex are doing good with the uh, with the tablet stuff because when we were babysitting her the other night, when Mariah and I were babysitting her, yeah, she was uh, she had that episode that she was watching, uh-huh. and you you had mentioned before you left, you're like, dude, you got to like make sure when she's done with that episode that you stop her because the episodes will just keep playing and she went into her room she's like i'm gonna finish watching the episode i'm like all right let me know when it's over and dude she did nice <laughs> like the episode was over she like stopped i mean maybe because she like knows that mariah and i were gonna like play hide and seek and you know do games and stuff uh-huh. so maybe that's why but but like i was really impressed like the episode was over and at six years old like i definitely <laughs> would have like kept watching cartoons at until i was eight i was <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. don't let me on youtube because yeah. i'm just gonna keep going yeah, yeah I, I mean for me, I think social media is our next great addiction. Mm. So I just think we don't have enough data to show this, but we do have some, which is that like, you know, social media creates a dopamine response just like cocaine and yeah. plenty of studies have said this. And and it goes right to your point is how I would answer this question to Holly is the way that you use these things is how your kids are gonna see the way that you use these things. And it's the same for even just relationships with two people. My wife and I try so hard to never be on our phones in public when we're together. Mm. And it's not because we don't 
want to be. It's because we want to be present with each other. We've left the house to go do something together. Let's do it together. And it's a challenge. It is absolutely a challenge to fight the urges, to grab the phone, to pacify the moments, to get through the boredom. But I also have found for me personally, taking breaks from social media. Mm. I know you guys have done this as well. I did my first detox in 2014. It is enlightening. Mm. And I think that if you are a person that feels like you're going to struggle to help even people around you, but kids, it's probably saying a little bit about your usage of these things and going like, well, I can't put Instagram down. Like, how am I gonna tell a kid not to put a tablet down? Mm-hmm. Well, you need to figure that out for yourself and then also see the benefits of not having to have these things. Yeah. Uh, and I do wanna mention just about your, your thing about influence and influencers is that our intent is not to be influence, influential. Our intent is to be helpful or entertaining. Mm. So when the intent is different, that's, when good things happen. That's when influence happens, but it's not because we were trying to be, it's just because we were trying to do the other things we were doing and it was a byproduct of it. Ryan and I aren't, we're not proselytizing. Like I don't want to convert anyone to minimalism. And I think if you're trying to be an influencer, if that is your explicit goal, then what you're trying to do, you're actually trying to to either propagate an ideology, which is really bad, or I just think I, I don't, I don't like ideologies in general. I, I think they're they're full of dogma. Uh, I like ideas. But I don't like ideology. And then also the, uh, or you're trying to to propagate a uh, something that is just there to make you money. You know, you, totally. it's you see yeah. like influencers who are like have the perfectly oh. positioned like oh, yeah. sports drink in their photos or whatever, and it's gross. Yeah. Do you see the one where the the girl got into it? The bike accident. Well, yeah, it's like I think here's here's the thing. I think so. So this long story short, this girl who's very open with a lot of her troubles and tribulations in life, and that's we talked about that earlier. How it is actually kind of nice to like to know that oh, you're not perfect either, but yet you're still you know successful in your own way. Yeah, but there's also something to be said about the. The overdoing it, the sure. faux authenticity. Well, That's exactly wait, so it. So, it. yeah. <laughs> so, so she had a, a a motorcycle accident, and it turned into a photo shoot. And whether the accident was faked or not, I mean, that's up for debate. But like, it turned into this photo shoot where it was this, you know, very perfectly posed photos of her with products. With in products, a, yeah, it, yeah. It was well, yeah. I mean, it's and again, like, if you read into the story. And and because you've got to hear both sides of the story, she you know is very adamant about like this was not strategically placed products. But regardless, though, like you're in an emergency situation, you don't need perfectly posed photos, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and, and that's I think that's a uh, it's a really dark road we're going down with with the inf- with the influencers. But I'll tell you, man, I saw this one story too about this girl. She had like you know two point seven billion follow. I don't know how many it was it was a lot millions of followers and. She launched her own clothing line. Did you see this one yeah, too? Yeah. And she sold like five shirts. Yeah. <laughs> that is the difference between influential and influencer. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Because you guys can talk about a thing, you can promote a thing, you can talk, and people will come to it. Same with us. Like we have a core group of people who believe in us and want to support us. Mm-hmm. And it's because we've given them helpful things, we've entertained them, we've brought value to their life. But when you don't, when you're just a thing to scroll by that mm-hmm. looks nice, that's very different. And I think we are finding that when people set out to be those things, there's a realization after a certain amount of time of, oh, I don't have a business. There's no value exchange here. I can't actually make money from this other than companies wanting to have something in the photo with me. And that feels really empty after a while. And I think you just see that in this culture that's changing a little bit, but it's still also so new that 
I started this 10 years ago, not wanting to be an influencer, not wanting to do that, just wanting to tell stories of brands, mm -hmm. but realizing very quickly like, oh, I don't wanna be someone who just talks about companies. Like I wanna talk about my life and then a company is just along the way for the ride. Yeah. And then figuring out like, oh, that also still doesn't feel great. So I don't even wanna do that anymore. Yeah. And so this, we're just in this really weird time of like Instagram influencers and all the social media people. And going back to Holly's question, I, I think some of this too is celebrity culture in America, especially has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. So how have you helped your kids not idolize celebrities as soon as they grow up. And some of that I think relates to how you keep them away from social media influence and those things too. Yeah. Two things there, you, you use the word just, which I, I is the most important word because you're just scrolling through and seeing these beautiful images. And I, if I were to say, if there's anything that Instagram has done positively for our society, Instagram in particular, is um, it has cr helped create some aesthetic beauty that was not otherwise there. Mm -hmm. I, I th think uh, very rarely there were instances where people really cared about aesthetics because they knew the value that it brought forward pre-Instagram, and they would they would. You know, I think about when we were on our very first tour. Instagram was around, but not really. Uh, not really there. Uh, it, w it wasn't at its peak right. popularity. Really ugly logo with like six bad filters. <laughs> yeah. <all> yeah. <laughs> right. and, and it, it didn't have the popularity it had, but we would, a lot of our, our, uh, tour stops were in coffee shops that, that year or, you know, really small bookstores or whatever. And some of the coffee shops were ugly and, and I remember like coffee shop aesthetic in the oddies, but like 2003 time, like, it was very like farmhouse, like every like welcome home yeah. signs and stuff. But then occasionally you go to a place. Uh, this is gonna be a bad example. Like in St. Pete, there was Kawa Coffee, mm -hmm. um, who didn't have great coffee, but they had the uh, aesthetics down, the, man. But the, yeah, the, and, yeah, and in fact, they looked like they should have had awesome coffee. <laughs> right, those are the worst. <laughs> and and uh, the the thing though, like that made the experience good is they had a really strong aesthetic, mm -hmm. and it it made up for the most part for mediocre coffee right mm -hmm. um and and there are a lot of places that were actually had good coffee and the aesthetic actually complemented the coffee in a way it, and uh but now what you're seeing is aesthetics are becoming more important because you want people to instagram your retail business or whatever and so in a weird way uh, we've brought aesthetics to the forefront, which is, by the way, where they should be. Aesthetics are the visual representation of what you're trying to create. Where it becomes a problem is when we focus just on aesthetics, right? Yeah. If, it's, if it's just a facade on a rotting house, then the house is going to crumble. Mm -hmm. And that's what an influencer is, where it's aesthetic only there's no substance there there's there's no values there's no 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 system of contribution there it is merely beauty for the sake of being beautiful whereas if you add a beautiful aesthetic on top of something that is meaningful it actually enhances the overall experience there's a reason that flowers are beautiful it's because they attract the, the most beautiful flowers attract the bees. The aesthetics are actually part of the experience. And if, if you have a not beautiful flower, it's not going to get propagated at all because the bees aren't going to go to that flower in the first place. So I think it needs to be part of the experience. The second thing I'll say that is worrisome, the, the worrisome side of this, there's a, a survey recently 
amongst high school students about what they want to be when when they grow up mm. and then um i think the number one occupation in china was engineer and number one occupation in the united states was youtuber mm-hmm. and um YouTube is simply a platform. Being a YouTuber literally means nothing. Uh, we're on YouTube. Like this podcast is on on YouTube, but we're not YouTubers necessarily. I mean, if you call us that, I'm not going to get offended by that. Just like if you call me an influencer, I'm not going to be offended by that. Uh, we could have a conversation about it, but our objective is to not be a YouTube uh, to be a YouTuber. It's to create a video version of the podcast and YouTube happens to be a, a distribution platform yeah. that we use. Yeah, the, the the YouTuber though, I think p- kids look at that and they look at it as an easy way to make money. Yeah. And they're- Get success yeah. and be accepted and- there's something, there's something there, man, because an engineer takes work. Like no one in China thinks like, oh, I'm gonna be an engineer and it's gonna be really easy work. Like they look at the hard work and they wanna do the hard work. They wanna be an engineer where you know, here we're looking for the easy way out. We're looking for the ephemeral, simple way to make money. And it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't know what that says about our society, but there's something going on for sure. We're, we're attracted to shortcuts. Yeah. We are. I mean, we live in a shortcut culture for, I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's, mm-hmm. it's everywhere. And it's, it's a dangerous thing because what you realize, and, and I talk about in this book and you brought it up too, is your life is not a highlight reel. So there's not only going to be positivity. There's not only going to be success. You're going to have downs. You're going to have things that go wrong. And it's about understanding that that is life. So if you can figure out how to get through that in your own way and you feel fulfilled by it, even when things are going wrong and you can deal with them like your health this year, you still feel like a good person. You still feel like you're bringing value. You still feel like you're a good husband. You still feel like you're a good dad. All these different things. It's because your life is not centered around some outward external validation and success metric. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's I I learned that the hard way because I really fell into the outward success metrics of being on all the shows, being on like you guys have done a lot of the things that I did many years ago and it felt great, felt amazing. But then I would go home and I'd go, oh, I can't pay the bills this week. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I have to like, you know, I I can't sleep because I have to edit a video tonight to like mm-hmm. do these things. And you start to realize things are out of alignment, although I'm presenting them as in perfect alignment. Mm-hmm. And that's what social media tends to do. And mm-hmm. it's why I love taking breaks from it. It's why the, mo- the post that gets the most uh, views on our site, over a million views at this point, is a social media detox post. If you search social media detox, our post is number one. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I love that because it is something we put out into the world that I didn't even intend to have be a thing. It just was something I knew I had to change about myself Mm -hmm. because I was falling into the, I need these photos to be perfect. 10 photos later, still not good. Let's take some more. Mm. That's a dangerous way to live. And there's something to be said about aesthetics being important. And you're right, because it shows that something has value more than maybe something else does. But if you're just doing it for the aesthetics purpose, mm-hmm. I think that's where we really run into some dangerous territory. It was the biggest differentiator for for uh, MisfitCon was everything was handcrafted and they had an aesthetic presentation but it wasn't simply the that was that was the icing on all of it yeah. and it's what made it, it took the it took the meaningful aspects of it and created a visual version of that everything was was truly handcrafted there and would it have still been a meaningful experience if we would have used red solo cups sure probably but but, and, but that's and, just it. It would have been. Yeah. And yeah. that's what matters is like the content, the meat of it, the, the, the bones of it was were beautiful. Right. Yeah. But I think what, what made it most memorable was the fact that the aesthetics were there as well. Right.
Right. And so you married this meaningful core with a beautiful presentation of it. Not a perfect mm-hmm. presentation, mm-hmm. but a beautiful presentation. It's it's putting your best foot forward uh, and and using using the visual cues uh, was was something I think was important for them. And I think at the, the root of that event was that it did something so well in bringing a diverse group of people together in a great environment that made it a perfect event. There's no such thing, but it's that intent of it didn't the food didn't matter the place didn't matter the the chair all the imperfections of it and the like uniqueness of it really didn't matter because at the core it was a great thing Mm -hmm. and i think that for me is why good movies succeed good books succeed good podcasts succeed good businesses succeed is because at the core they solve a problem or they create something that is unique that hasn't been done before Mm -hmm. and everything else that's on top of it like there's no footage of Misfit anywhere. Mm-hmm. There are no photos except on Flickr, which tells you how old Misfit is. Yeah. <laughs> and it still had a waiting list of thousands of people. And that to me is just the really interesting part of when you make something great, it doesn't have to have an Instagram account and a YouTube account and all of the strategy around it because the thing is good enough that people will talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I have a software product that's a very small online course platform that for five years has just been a side project. But very quickly here, it's going to start to make me a full-time income for our entire household for all the money that we need mm. probably in the next two years. Wow. I'm so excited, but it's been a seven-year journey. Right. People aren't willing to go on the seven-year journey. And also I've had to do other things in that time because that wasn't enough for our household. Mm. And so I think it's about figuring out making things that are great, using distribution platforms if you can, and then just finding your own weird way to do these things that makes you feel really good about it and that hopefully attracts the right people. Yeah, the, the word perfect often, you know, there are, you can have a book that is written perfectly with respect to to grammar and syntax. Mm-hmm. It's called a calculus textbook. <laughs> and we haven't had one person who's written a calculus textbook on this podcast because <laughs> it can be flawless in one way, but it lacks the soul of of creativity and expression and 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 sort of the heart of uh, of connection. And, and you can have a perfectly perfect textbook but does it move people does it does it uh, does it inspire them the same way that misfit does and all of its idiosyncrasies all of its weirdness yeah no nah, it's not even close right yeah I, and i will say one more thing just going back to this i remember so watching your talk at misfit and i was like man this guy has it all together go up after him gives a hug i'm like oh he's a hugger that's cool they didn't expect that but then we went to sushi do you remember we went and had dinner And I remember having that dinner with you and going, hold on a second, you're a weird person. Like you're a funny, interesting person. Next year you come to Misfit. And so what I saw from Ryan, didn't even know him, but I saw like short, clean cut guy. I'm like, oh, this guy's like clean cut, straight edge. you're the opposite of those things. <laughs> and like, I remember your sandals, like I gave you such a hard time about the sandals you were wearing at the time, yeah. but it was so you, and it was so like, it was just so much texture of who you were. And so the imperfections of you guys are what make you perfect to some people. Mm. The imperfections of Misfit are what made it a perfect event to me. And so I think that that, that perfect word obviously has so much subtext and so much uh, subjectiveness to it, but there is no finding that, there's just, trying to figure out how everything fits in in a way that you feel like, oh, this is it. This is what I love. This is what I care about. These are the things that matter to me. Yeah. What people care about is, are you being genuine? Are you being consistent? Are you being honest? And if you can be those things, like you're, you're going to find your tribe, you're going to find your community. 
But, you know, I, I think often about Derek Sivers, you know, proudly exclude 99% of customers. Yeah. Like, that's powerful, man. Yeah. As long as you're not doing it in a, a spiteful or include everyone who wants to be included, obviously. Of course, yeah. Uh, and Excluding for the sake of exclusion is, again, not meaningful. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. It's just realizing that ultimately what, what he's saying, what you're saying there is um, you don't have to try to make something that is for everyone. Right. And it's okay. Yeah. There's plenty of everyone's out there for us to all have our own little groups of right right mm-hmm. and especially in in this era where you know you need the you know the thousand true fans or the six thousand true fans or whatever it is yeah. like to 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 make it worth it um uh there isn't enough for you and that enough doesn't include all seven billion people on this planet yeah Jason, I want to thank you for being here today, brother. Where, where, where should we send folks? We, we can we can tell them to get Own Your Weird and maybe even read it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we have this. Uh, and I do. we didn't say this. Ryan read it. So I think everyone should know that well, Ryan did read because he is on the back of the book as a I blurb. was just going to say, you got me and Paul quoted back there. I, yeah. I think that's beautiful, man. Yeah. yeah it's that's, good. I, I, I really I'm, do appreciate it. I'm very it. proud to be on the back of your quoted on the back of your book. And I will say, I, I really don't care that you didn't read it because we know each other. So. <laughs> well, I do care. And okay. I'm sorry. No, so, that's fine. Uh, you can read it and then leave a review on Amazon. I want to see your face on there. <laughs> it's like the only review Three you've star. ever. Exactly. <laughs> That's uh, the worst review uh, you can get. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, super quick, really funny. Uh, I got two three-star reviews for early readers. So my publisher got these early readers. One three-star review, worst book I've ever read. Don't pick this book up. Three stars. Oh, wow. Second three-star review, love this book. So many <laughs> insights. And I put them next to each other and I just went, okay, this is why you don't read the reviews. This uh-huh. is why you don't do things for yeah. the reviews because it doesn't matter. So anyway, no. the book is available everywhere. Uh, I recorded the audiobook, had a lot of fun with it. So people like audiobooks. I hope you enjoy it. Um, as always with authors, if you do buy the book, I'd love to know if it brought you value, if you enjoyed it. My email's in the book. Uh, you can find me easily online. Give We're- me a three-star review if you want. Uh, that'd be fine. <laughs> uh, and then my wife and I run a little community called Wandering Aimfully. It's at wanderingaimfully.com. Uh, and if you're excited about taking a break from social media, just Google social media detox and figure that out. If that's the one thing you take away. I love when people find that is to be the like, I'm going to yeah. make a change in my life and I know I'm addicted to this thing. That to me is actually almost as important as buying the book because I know it's just going to make change in your life. Dude, that made, I unfollowed everyone on all my platforms and it made for the most meaningful experience because I found myself, I'd go to Twitter and I'd be, I didn't have that feed and I'm like, oh, I wonder what Jason's up to. Oh, I wonder what so-and-so's up to. And after a month of doing that, I'm like, oh, these are the people that I actually want to follow or the people that I'm going out and seeking rather than them just being dumped in my newsfeed. Yeah. Dude, you're one of my favorite people. The only people that are uh, that I appreciate more than you are our patrons. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what if I was a patron? Would I be on that level? Absolutely. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only a patron of Matt Diavella, by the way, just so you guys know. My only person I support because he's so great. Yeah. Uh, Sean, can you just delete what we've recorded for the last two hours? <laughs> <laughs> I looked at it. You guys had enough. I was like, that's ah, fine. They're doing just fine without me. No, no. I, uh, it's what about your podcast? Uh, we, yeah, my wife and I have a podcast where we kind of, uh, we're shifting gears a little bit. We want to kind of own this idea of experimentation. We've kind of done this in business for the past couple of years, but we really want to put everything through the lens of testing assumptions through the podcast. So we want to talk about life, business relationships, um, experimentation, what it looks like to live and work and kind of have those things overlap quite a bit. Uh, and then also like how it feels to be in a relationship with the person you work with and how you figure those things out. Uh, so yeah, we have a podcast called Wander 
wandering aimfully. The name may change, but you'll be able to find it. People are good at searching for things these days. Uh, so yeah, those are the things that we do. Uh, we have a lot of fun. We love our community as much as you love your patrons. <laughs> love you guys, but we love our Waymers more than we love anybody else. Uh, so I can go right back at you. But yeah, it's uh, it's been fun, you guys. I, I really love hanging out with you. You guys have been yeah. super influential in my life, and I know that I'm not alone in saying that. So I really appreciate it. No, you're awesome, man. I gotta tell you, dude. When I first when he when he first told me about Jason Surfer app or JasonHeadsets.com, <laughs> I mean, I had this instant like judgment, which yeah. I typically don't judge, man. If anything, like I relate, yeah. but I did have this instant judgment, like, oh, like Jason's looking to make a quick buck. Yeah. But like once I got to know you and why you do the things you do, that is what really. Uh, really solidified our friendship, man. Is like the the reason why you do things. They're not just thoughtless things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, there's a lot of deliberate things that go, a, do, a lot of deliberate thoughts that go into it, and that's what I appreciate you, man. Everything you do is is very deliberate. I, I felt the opposite from Ryan, like because the things that you did, like the the selling of the t shirt, uh, uh, or the the logos on the t shirt, whatever, and, and um, selling your last name, like fundamentally they don't align not with my foundational values but my core values but i uh i w- applauded the the uniqueness of each so much and like I, the creativity of of each of those yeah. where i was like that's not something i would ever do but wow, I really appreciate someone who brings a totally different perspective and also is willing to do something that is so far outside the box. Mm. And by the way, something that should have been obvious. Like, (laughs) yeah, you can sell your last name. Why hasn't anyone done that? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, just because sometimes there are things that no one has has done yeah and so i actually really appreciate it even if it if it didn't resonate with me as something i would do personally uh the same is also true with like bex and i go to soccer games i'll never play soccer but like uh, i can appreciate the oh there's some there's a an amount of creativity or talent there that I don't possess, but I can still appreciate yeah, and it. I picture sure. you as a crazy soccer dad on the sideline, and it makes my life. I don't know if that is you, but <laughs> I just picture you screaming at little kids, and for some reason, I love it. I don't just know like why. tasing other parents. Yeah. <laughs> Ella, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. You should have scored. <laughs> yeah, that's what I picture. So that's the reality I live in. Uh, <laughs> appreciate you, brother. Love You're you, awesome, man. man. Thank you so for being much. here. Yes. It, Thank you, patrons. You guys are awesome. All right, y'all. Love people, use things. We'll see you next time. The Minimalists. <laughs>